If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How instrumental was Churchill in Britain's decision to stand against Hitler? What was it like to work with the consummate charmer President Franklin D. Roosevelt? And why did Stalin feel betrayed by his Western allies? Today, we're bringing you the third episode of our five-part series tackling the big questions of the Second World War with historian Lawrence Rees. In this episode, Lawrence joins Rachel Dinning to discuss the role of the big three in deciding the course of the conflict. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at the big three, so Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin. Um, Let's start with Churchill. He's very iconic for us here in the UK. Um, How can we best understand his war? He becomes prime minister on the 10th of May, 1940. In some ways, it's extraordinary he became prime minister because he becomes prime minister after a uh, a kind of terrible uh, problems the British had in uh, their invasion of Norway. And what happens is essentially this is a rather humiliating episode because it certainly doesn't work out as planned and we end up having to evacuate. And in fact, Churchill played a part in, in in all of this because he was first Lord of the Admiralty at the time. And in fact, later on, 
uh, he was to write, um, he thought it was a marvel that I survived. So it's curious, isn't it? How on earth does this person who's played a part in these military problems that were going to lead to the fall of Chamberlain, the prime minister, uh, how does he become prime minister? And, And the answer is, well, first of all, and I think primarily because he had shown himself to be absolutely steadfast in his view of the threat that Hitler was going to pose. And he'd been doing that at some personal risk to his own reputation. He'd been doing that for many years. And Chamberlain was tainted in some ways by being the person who in 1938 at the conference had come back and essentially said, you know, we can do a deal with Hitler, which of course proved to be absolutely the wrong judgment. In the very short term, you think, well, it's curious Churchill got the job, but actually you have to understand the long the long tail of it, the long-termness of it, to understand why that happened. So he becomes prime minister in, on the 10th of May, 1940, and it's the very day that uh, Hitler launches an invasion of Western Europe. So imagine it's the first day you're prime minister and you've got that going on. And within five days, the prime minister of France is ringing you up and saying, um, we've lost, we, we're, we're defeated. And it's very hard to convey today the shock and horror of that. People remember the First World War when it took four years, it was four years of, of virtual stalemate in Western Europe. And now suddenly, suddenly, this extraordinary victory in a matter of weeks in Western Europe for the Germans. So, I mean, you're dealing with levels of pressure that I think it's very hard to, to imagine and pressure, I think, to make peace. Because the, the, the fact is that we were very much, in European terms, certainly, standing on our own. I mean, we had an empire in those days, and we had um, Canada or Australia or South Africa um, who, who might be supporting us. But nonetheless, in European terms, we're very much on our own. And why not try and reach some kind of humiliating peace with Hitler? It would have been wouldn't have meant necessary German occupation, but it would have meant uh, a kind of horrible puppet government, the instigation of terrible policies and of anti-Semitic policies. Of, it would have been horrible, but nonetheless, you can understand how uh, some people might have thought, well, it's better than carrying on this fight and maybe our total destruction. And Churchill would have none of that. Churchill absolutely uh, squashed any sense that we were going to go down that route. There were moves to discuss it in war cabinet and he had to kind of be very careful how he put it and very careful in what he was saying and and so on. But nonetheless, when he went to the wider cabinet, when he went to the House of Commons, he was absolutely steadfast. There's going to be no discussion and no attempts at mediation through third parties or whatever to try and reach a a peace. And that, that really is one of the defining moments of, this country, because it's perfectly possible to imagine how somebody else in that job would not have done that. And when people talk about individuals' contribution to history, if you just look at those weeks, those days in in May and early June 1940, you can really point to someone who made um, the most seismic difference. It's fair to say that things were pretty bleak at, at this point, but how did Churchill think we could win the war? I think he realised absolutely that without American assistance, there was no possibility of victory. And so 
really from the earliest days, he does everything he can to woo President Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt's in a very difficult position. He's in a difficult position because there's still a very strong isolationist movement in America, a sense of, well, this is a European war. Why would we get involved? Why would we try and um, send our boys to die over there for this? Roosevelt has to be very careful, and Churchill is absolutely doing everything he can to get the American help. And it begins to bear fruit. And so the first thing you have in the summer of 1940 is a deal to exchange some not very good, it has to be said, American warships for British bases that are in um, various parts of the world um, so that the Americans can actually use them as military outposts. And this is a deal that's done, and it's in some ways symbolic because it's a sign to the world that the Americans are going to try and help us. Um, And this moves on, I think, crucially once Roosevelt wins the election Uh, presidential election at the end of 1940. After that, he's able to actually push through Lend-Lease, which is many, many, many more resources which can come to Britain. So Churchill realises very clearly that without America, without American assistance, it's going to be extremely hard for us, never mind winning the war, but to continue the war. That makes sense. And on the topic of Roosevelt, what was he like? What kind of president was he? What was his personality like? Well, I've I've been lucky in in my career in that I've met people who um, work with Churchill, I've met people who work with Stalin, and I've met people who work with Roosevelt. And something kind of unexpected came from that opportunity, which is that of the three of them, Roosevelt actually is really the hardest to understand and penetrate. And that's because Roosevelt never wrote memoirs. He never kept a diary. He never had one confidant. He never had one person he told his deepest feelings to. Um, He was an an enigma, and yet he was also an extraordinarily uh, charming person to meet. Remember, one of the people who worked with him said the phrase he used all the time is, I can handle it. I can handle them. He believed he could handle people, meaning that his own charm was such that he was able to get what he wanted and make sure that um, uh, everything was smoothed over. But it was very hard to know what was going on behind the smile, very hard to know on what was going on behind the charm. And so he's an absolutely fascinating, fascinating character. Of course, who was the youngest of the big three and also died the youngest. So he actually dies in April 1945. So he doesn't then, again, he doesn't, as I say, he doesn't write his memoirs, you know, he doesn't do interviews with people. Well, I'm not even sure an interview with Roosevelt would have got you very far because you wouldn't have um, necessarily known much. He would just tell you charming anecdotes, I think. I met someone who, who said that one technique he had at Roosevelt, first thing he would do if he had disagreeable news was just not reply. So he would you'd send him and he just wouldn't reply. But then if you actually managed to get a meeting with him, he might arrange the meeting and then it would be cancelled at the last minute. So that eventually, but if you did eventually get to meet him, um, he would just keep talking. So you had a half hour meeting and you go, how lovely, how wonderful to see you. And then how charming and how no, and you just keep on. And at, at the end of it, you, you go, oh, it's so wonderful to you. And then you go and you go, but I didn't get a chance. To, but he was, so he, he was an incredible manipulator of people. 
Also bear in mind, he was the first disabled president. From the age of 39, he lost um, from the waist down. He couldn't use his body. So he was, in, he was in a wheelchair president, but very hard to find any pictures of him actually in a wheelchair. He told another guy who I met who knew him, he said, hey, the thing about me is I'm a happy thought guy. Hmm. I thought how extraordinary to have that challenges in your life and to be still very, very much a happy thought guy. He also, I mean, there's another phrase that he, he was heard to use was never let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. So what he would do was he would employ special envoys to Britain, a man called Harry Hopkins, to the Soviet Union, a man called Joseph Davis. And these people would be sent with messages and, and to give um, information back to Roosevelt without any official um, position, really, much to the annoyance in many cases of the American diplomats who were in these places because that's their job. But he had these people who would report back. He would, he would send... Um, uh, questions through one agency and have it come back through another so that only he was the repository of everything that was going on. In many ways, the image that he's projected, even through history, which is of this sort of genial, um, there's so much more going on with that individual. What's his relationship with Churchill like? Um, because obviously, I mean, Churchill himself describes Britain's relationship with the US as being a special relationship. But what was the relationship between these two individuals Again, like? I think what, what's really interesting about that is that I think it's in some respects, it's an act, um, which is that both of them, but certainly Roosevelt understands how, you know, he's got to be, they've got to be seen to be chummy and they've got to seen to be... Uh, um, friends and everything. I'm not sure they were ever friends. And the reason is because I think friendships are often based on common belief systems. And they didn't really have a common, they're both Democrats, of course. But nonetheless, Churchill is absolutely fundamentally uh, a believer in the British Empire. Roosevelt is most certainly not a believer in the, in the British Empire. Um, I think he feels that in many ways, Britain is this outdated place and, and that it's not the future. Um, indeed, he sort of hints to Stalin as much when they meet. So what they shared was massive common interests. And those common interests were in defeating Germany and later in defeating, defeating Japan, where, and, and where you have to give, just as you give Churchill phenomenal credit for May 1940, impossible to exaggerate how much credit you should give him for that. I think it's also equally impossible to exaggerate how much credit you should give Roosevelt for supporting Britain. Again, just as another prime minister might have reached a different conclusion in May 1940, another president might easily have decided to pursue isolationism uh, in a way that uh, Roosevelt absolutely was opposed to. And what about the third character in this then? So we've got Churchill, we've got Roosevelt. What was their relationship with Stalin like? Well, the first thing to think about with Stalin is to is to realize that actually, uh, up until the war, outside of the Soviet Union, and bear in mind, I keep calling it the Soviet Union because that's what it was then, but it's predominantly Russia. It's Russia and the other republics within the Soviet Union. So Stalin, who was um, essentially in charge of the Soviet Union. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. He was very little known in the West. So uh, all this is coming as new. No one had met him uh, prior to uh, Churchill's first meeting with him in the summer of 1942. Stalin didn't travel outside of the Soviet Union. He was very, very much an unknown character. The atrocities were known, although in many cases disputed, because you've got to remember that many people back then were also outside of uh, the Soviet Union, were uh, communist-leaning, or even actual card-carrying communists who tended to downplay the atrocities that had gone on in the 1930s, the show trials and so on. But there was a whole movement also to publicize what was happening. So it was very much this sort of, you know, revolutionary hidden place. And what happens is that people are surprised. Anthony Eden visits Stalin, who was foreign minister. He visits Stalin in December 1941. And they're surprised. And they're surprised because... Stalin doesn't fit the image you've got of this sort of bloodthirsty revolutionary, you know, kind of guy with a knife between his teeth, you know, dripping blood. I mean, he's, he doesn't fit. He doesn't fit because he's this rather short, quite quiet, relatively old guy. I mean, he's Churchill and Roosevelt. If they came into the room now, you would know it because you wouldn't get a word in. But, but you would, it would, they would try and dominate you by the sheer force of their personality. Stalin does the reverse. This guy I met who, who worked for Stalin had to go and visit him. And he said, the problem of taking a meeting with Stalin was that you'd go in and he would just sit and look at you. You'd have to make your report. But the problem was that if you gave him too much eye contact, he'd think you were um, overconfident and trying to get one over on him. But if you didn't give him enough eye contact, he'd think you were shifty and plotting against him. So he said the, the sort of like the immediate problem you had was how much eye contact. I think that's that's your you, before you even speak, you're worried about eye contact and you know, and it, it's to do with this sort of aggressive listening that Stalin had. It's like the opposite of Roosevelt, who was a talker. Yes. He yes. was talking at you and so exactly. you didn't get your question in. Yes. The you just, yeah, you just sit there. You would sit there. Mm. And he would often be the last person to speak in a meeting. And then the last person who speaks in the meeting 
is the power person in the meeting. Fundamentally, he was a bureaucrat, but a murderous bureaucrat. And that's why. So what, what becomes really fascinating to me is that you find that people who are not politicians in these entourages, well, first of all, you get Anthony Eden, who later on says, uh, I think I paraphrase what he says, but he wrote how if he had to send one person in to a meeting to try and get what he wanted, it would be Stalin. <laughs> he was, you know, and, and Sir Alexander Cadogan, who was this rather kind of frosty head of the Foreign Office, he said that uh, of, uh, he wrote in his diary that of the three leaders of the big three, Stalin was the most impressive. And I think he thinks that because he's more like someone who's studied all the details. Um, Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook, who was chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, so the most powerful soldier in Britain, he once, I think he wrote in his diary how he was impressed by Stalin's knowledge of train timetable. And he said something like in his diary about he formed a very high opinion of his uh, ability and shrewdness. You know, These people recognise in Stalin something. The problem is that it's directed towards this utterly ruthless, uh, inhuman end. What Stalin understands is that Diplomacy and all it's just all talk. All that matters is who has the power. So you find that they're shocked. Anthony Eden is shocked at the first meeting he has with him in December 1941. He's shocked because in December 1941, the Germans are just outside Moscow. It's dark, dark days for Stalin and the Soviet Union. And yet the first thing, what's the first thing Stalin brings up in the meeting? The first thing is to say, we need an agreement that um, at the end of the war, uh, I get to keep the portion of Eastern Poland that was given to me under the Nazi-Soviet pact. It's almost like the sense is, well, shouldn't we be talking about how to win it back? No, before we, let's just start with that, to make it clear, I want that back. Anthony Eden then writes to Churchill and says, well, it should be very clear that this guy wants this land back and this is going to be an issue. And Churchill writes this wonderful memo back saying he got this land in, uh, what's the word, shameful collusion with Hitler. And, you know, so this incredible, wonderful sense. And here's the thing. Two years later, Churchill's going to suggest to Stalin that he has the land back. And, you know, I've bigged up Churchill early on, but this is, this is a very interesting moment in history. You know, why does he do it? What shifts for Churchill in that time? Reality. Well, that's not what Churchill says shifts. What Churchill writes, uh, he tries. He writes another note at the time in which he says, he's sort of, I'm paraphrasing, the changes in Stalin since then, but actually they're not really changes, particularly at that point, because they know at that point in, this is agreed at the Tehran conference at the end of 1943, and by then they know that uh, Stalin's been responsible for this hideous atrocity of Katyn massacre, or the killing of the Polish officers and intelligentsia. So they know that, they know who they're dealing with. They know who they're dealing with. But nonetheless, I think Churchill recognises he can't just go, let's face facts, things have changed. And what's changed in practical terms is the Red Army has proved itself to be a formidable fighting force and has defeated the Germans at Stalingrad, is fighting them back. And there's a recognition that the Red Army is going to occupy all this land and what are we going to do? We're never going to go to war for that. And in practical terms, what are we going to do? So it's it's just really tough, real politique. 
And what Churchill suggests is the solution, and this is incredible, what Churchill suggests is the solution to get out of this problem is for the whole of Poland to move left. Roughly, the idea of Poland would roughly remain the same size, but shifts so as to incorporate chunks of Germany. And the reason it can do that is because the Germans have lost. So bad luck. They can, you know. So, so the map of, if you look at a map of Poland today and a map of Poland in August 1939, you'll see they're radically different countries in terms of territory. The middle bit stays, but the whole thing's moved. So, for example, um, uh, Lvov, uh, as it was called under uh, in eastern Poland, that one town had, I think it had, I can't remember how many names it had during the, the, the 20th century. It was called Lemberg by the Germans. It was called Lvov by the Poles. It was called Lviv by the Ukrainians and so on. It was called something else, I think, different pronunciation by the Russians. And I worked out there was, there was practically no group of people. If you, the Jews were completely targeted uh, by the Nazis and uh, horrendous atrocities uh, to the Jews of Lvov. The Poles who had uh, settled there and had fought in the Polish army were targeted by Stalin. But it just is changing and changing and changing. And so Churchill with Stalin, his solution is that the whole of Poland moves left. Was Churchill appeasing Stalin? Well, now that's a... Chamberlain. That's a bit... But this sounds slightly familiar. That's a big one, yes. Well, I mean, yes... Radical, but what is that? But it, I mean, it's, he's, it's a real, it's a, it's a recognition of, a, of the real situation that he couldn't felt he could change, but nonetheless, it's giving Stalin what he wants. When Churchill had said he wasn't going to do it because the territory he got was in quote shameful collusion with Hitler, mm. but nonetheless, let's face facts. You forget that we had large numbers of Poles fighting in the British Army. Poles who had managed to escape Poland, Poles who had managed to escape through through via the Soviet Union, but Poles who had managed to get away. And they fought unbelievably bravely in the British Army. And at the beginning of 1944, just after Churchill has done this deal or suggested this deal with Stalin to move Poland, many of these people are fighting and dying in an in a incredibly tough battle, a place called Monte Cassino in Italy, where they have to climb up this mountain to, to the capture the remains of this monastery that's on the hill and the Germans are holding out in incredible terms. And I, again, I met people who fought on both sides of that and it's absolutely terrifying battle. And if you go to Monte Cassino today, one of the most moving sites, I think pretty much the most moving war cemetery I've ever seen is at Monte Cassino. And Monte Cassino is obviously it's hills and sits on one hill just opposite where the actual monastery is. It's a beautifully laid out cemetery. And it contains the Poles who died fighting for the British to capture Monte Cassino. And I was filming this. And as we were filming it, a Polish school trip turned up. I think they had a priest with them and they was walking and they were uh, kind of marching down and the priest was singing and they were singing these hymns. And they come up and it's incredibly emotional for these people. It was incredibly emotional being there because on the gravestones it had where these people came from. And an awful lot of them came from eastern Poland, the bit that Churchill is going to give away. And one of the biggest towns in that area was Lvov. Lviv, as it's called today, but then called Lvov. On the gravestones, it had where they were born. So on these gravestones, there's a lot of Polish names, you know, these young men killed, and, it, you know, Lvov. And these um, two sixth form students were there and saying, 
this is a Polish cemetery, right? Yeah, and they go, okay. Well, then why did so many of them not come from Poland? And you think of oh, these poor Poles who died there later on for these people to go, you didn't come from Poland. You know, we were part of this. We were part of the decision that allowed this to happen. And there's an incredible inscription. I think it says something like, our bodies belong to the earth of Italy or something, but our hearts to Poland. The history of this war has resonances. And if you look at the relationship between the big three, and you're, we're talking about Churchill and, and Stalin, this is something Roosevelt supports. The Poles go to Roosevelt and, and are trying to talk about this. And he greets them with some remark that, you know, I've been looking at these maps and uh, borders keep changing around here, don't they? So at the Tehran conference, again, typical of Roosevelt, it's Churchill who is, is, has this conversation. But Roosevelt says, well, OK, I can see how we're going to need to do this. But I don't want to say that yet because um, I've got an election coming up and the Polish vote's quite important in America. There's a lot of American, a, a lot of Polish Americans. I'm curious, how did Roosevelt and Churchill deal with Stalin? He was a man responsible for the deaths of an enormous amount of people in his own country. How did they reconcile that? My own perception from people I've met and the documents and, and the books and so on. My own perception is that uh, at one level, they ended up uh, kidding themselves, which was that it was so important politically to believe that Stalin was not as reprehensible as he was. And yet they knew he was. But what's interesting is they suppressed that they knew he was. They, they hid that from their electorate. The chief reason we know that is because of the atrocity of Katyn. What this was, was in 1940, as a result of moving in and taking uh, Eastern Poland, Stalin actually was reordering it as he wished, and that involved a lot of deportations, and in some cases it involved killings, uh, mass killings, and around early 20,000s of Polish officers, a combination of Polish officers, of the intelligentsia, the elite. They were some uh, people of U Ukrainian descent who were also taken, and they were killed in a number of different killing locations around uh, the Soviet Union. And this was done, really, to eliminate uh, a leadership class. And this was hidden. In fact, one of the first uh, General Anders, who was the Polish general, who ended up uh, commanding Polish units in the British army, he met with Stalin and said, where are our officers? And, and Stalin, basically, it's an extraordinary minute to that meeting. And if you want to understand about power politics, I recommend anyone to read the minutes of that meeting because Stalin's toying with them. He recognises he has to, he's got certain areas he's got to be careful of with Churchill and Roosevelt, but the Poles, the Poles, they're not a threat to me. And, he's, and Stalin, Stalin and Hitler shared one thing, one thing. They both hated Poles. And Stalin in this meeting, I think, is just toying with these people. And he's toying with them because he knows he's killed them. And he's just saying, well, I don't know. And he was saying, one was turning to people saying, well, I must look for these, but where are they? And at one point he says, oh, I think they escaped. And Anders said, where? And Stalin goes, Manchuria? Try looking for them there. You know, just, it's, it's, hor it's extraordinary to read real power in a, in a meeting. And you, you see it. And later on, the Polish politicians go and see him and he's doing much the same thing. So anyway, so he's killed these people and kept it quiet as he thinks. 
1943, spring 1943, guess what? The Germans have conquered one of the killing sites, which is at a place called Katyn, outside a town called Smolensk in uh, Western Soviet Union. The Nazis discover the killing sites and they dig up the bodies. And there's all these uh, the Polish officers with little you know, pictures of their families and so on. There's, there's the bodies. And they publicize it. They organize a commission to come in and look at it. And, and, and it is absolutely plain that Stalin's secret police did this for all sorts of evidential reasons. So then there's a, a document written by one of the most extraordinary diplomats of the Second World War, a man called Owen O'Malley. And he is British ambassador to the Polish government in exile in London. And he's made a special study of this. And in his document, it is absolutely plain as a pikestaff, as they say, that the evidence shows Stalin committed this atrocity, mass killing of Polish officers and other intelligentsia uh, from Eastern Poland. And he sends the report to Churchill. And Churchill is essentially, you know, disquieted by it. And he sends it to the report to Roosevelt. And he says in his note to Roosevelt, I think you should read this. It is well written. And then there's a wonderful line, something like well written, perhaps too well written. And it goes to Roosevelt. And what does Roosevelt do? Roosevelt ignores it. There's no record of any comment he ever makes. What could be more um, not what he wants to hear than this? And then what happens is the Allies put pressure on the Poles to not say that Stalin did it. So not only do we now know, uh, beyond reasonable doubt, that Stalin killed the Polish officers, but the Polish politicians now are told not to mention it. That's going on. Uh, in 1943, before they have the meeting at the Tehran conference, the first of the big three meetings, when Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill are there, when Churchill will suggest moving the territory of Poland. Sure. So it was, but it, as you mentioned, it was sort of ignore what was happening, ignore yes. and deny yes. atrocity. Yes. Um, and then the big three obviously met at a number of famous conferences. You've mentioned Tehran already. Um, there's also Yalta. What was their relationship like at these conferences? How did they interact with one another, that kind of thing? Again, what you found is this extraordinary contrast. What you found is that um, Stalin doesn't speak much. And when he does, it's very, very much the point. And then you find Roosevelt and particularly Churchill making these wonderful, grand, eloquent talks and Stalin is just, is just sitting there at one point. I think someone says he looks rather amused at this because for Stalin, words are nothing. Words are cheap. What, what you need. And he says that is words, you know, what I need is action. And from Stalin's perspective, he thinks he's being betrayed. Stalin believes he's being betrayed because from the very first moment of the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Germans, what Stalin wants is what he calls and they call a second front. And the second front to us is D-Day. What he wants is the British and Americans to invade Western Europe. And the idea being that that will draw off large numbers of German troops, make his job easier. Because at this minute, the main focus of the whole war is in the Soviet Union in terms of numbers of troops. And that's what he wants to happen. He wants the second front. And in that sense, what happens is that um, Churchill and Roosevelt play with Stalin. At least that's how he sees it. Because 
at one point in 1942, it looks like they're saying, um, or certainly Roosevelt is saying, um, we'll have it, you know, D-Day will happen this year. There's very careful wording in the documents about whether that means, I think uh, Stalin takes it as that, but, you know, Roosevelt is, you know, it, it maybe maybe there's a way of sort of weaving, you know, but that's how, that's how uh, I think they want it to be perceived. So imagine he's been waiting since 1942 for D-Day. And at Tehran, they're still not giving him a, a firm date to, to, to when it is. And Tehran is the end of 1943. And Stalin is going, I want it in, it's got to be in May. To help me, it has got to be in May 1944. And again, this is revealing of Roosevelt. Because what happens is the British-American military people go away and they say, okay, we, we might be able to make it happen on June the 1st, 1944. So Roosevelt says, well, even if we said May the 31st, right, or the end of May, we could tell Stalin it's May, couldn't we? So you say, yes, May. And then it can be, you know, day over. I mean, it's, like, it's June, May. And that, again, is how Roosevelt is trying to handle Stalin. And is trying to say, no, yeah, May, May, it'll be in May. So Stalin is expecting it in May. It actually is, ends up being, as we all know, um, June the 6th. But so that's how they're handling it. But from Stalin's perspective, the big betrayal of the Second World War in terms of the Allies is you left us to bleed. And you see that in the relevant um, casualty numbers from Britain and America compared to the Soviet Union at the end of the war. They're totally disproportionate in terms of numbers who die. And Stalin believes that is because we left him. And so in terms of losses, the Soviet Union had the greatest losses there. Uh, but my final question to you with regards to the big three is who gained the most from the war? Well, again, and that's a really interesting question. I mean, you'd, you'd have to say that each of them gained something and each of them lost something. So if you looked at Roosevelt, you know, America ends up the economic powerhouse of the world in part because of the huge economic generation that goes on with the Second World War. Plus, you know, in terms of proportionate casualties, you know, several hundred thousand died, absolutely. No one knows for sure how many people, Soviet citizens and soldiers combined lost their lives, but estimates vary up to 27 million. Phenomenal numbers of people. Russia today, I don't know how the extent to which it's recovered in terms of its demographic loss from that period. So the, the, the Americans win the war, they're economically powerful without millions of losses, for sure. Plus, Roosevelt has this dream of the United Nations. It's his massive dream. And it's happened. That was Roosevelt's absolute wish that the United Nations would come into existence. He doesn't live to see it. He dies in April 1945. So you can say that of Roosevelt. Churchill, well, again, he saved Britain. Didn't necessarily save the empire because you can see the whole of that beginning to creak. And you can see with India, India is going to go a short period after the end of, end of the Second World War. And Churchill is going to be voted out of office because, you know, as we all know, Labour are going to win the election in the summer of 1945. But nonetheless, he has triumphed and he's the iconic figure he is today because of, because of that triumph. And Stalin, well, Stalin absolutely benefits because um, he gains Eastern Europe. He does get all the territory back that he wished for, that he got as a result of the Nazi-Soviet pact. And then, in terms of the years immediately after the Second World War, look at how the Soviet influence spreads right the way through, through into Europe. But it's at the most tremendous cost. It's at the most tremendous cost in terms of material losses 
and human losses and economic losses and also uh, the incredible destruction that the Germans wreaked over the Soviet Union. That was Lawrence Rees in conversation with Rachel Dinning. Next week, they'll be charting the course of the Holocaust. And in the meantime, you can find plenty more on the Second World War at historyextra.com, including a feature that Lawrence has written on the ideologies of Hitler and Stalin. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.